BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hoskins, ah, I'm a great actor, but today I'm fucking hammered, and I'm your bruiser Holden McNeely. And it's me, man, your fucking crazy corporate Bowser, man, <laughs> fucking Dennis Hopper, Goombas, <laughs> Goombas, man, where's my pizza? I mean, yeah, that's what you want, right? My crazy fucking Trump lizard energy, man, I'm John fucking... Fucking Dennis Hopper. Are you ready for a shit show? Oh, yeah. Ready for a shit show? All right. Because we're talking about the 1993 Super Mario Bros. movie, and man, oh, man, does it not disappoint. What a fun dumb fuck thing to research all week. The timing is obviously in conjunction with the upcoming (laughs) much more safely played, much more (laughs) crowd pleasing, much more literally all anybody wanted from a Super Mario Brothers movie as Super Mario Brothers movie that is about to come out. And uh, obviously there's never like basically this movie, just doing the research for this 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie, it was almost obliterated in the search engine optimization when trying to do research. They were like, do you mean mm. the upcoming good Mario movie? Right. Do and you it's mean like, the. No, bro. We do not <laughs> mean the good one, dog. From not this at all. point onwards, a Google search, a YouTube search, any search for Super Mario Brothers movie will get you this new one. And this. Forgotten shambling horror will be lost to time. <laughs> uh, yeah, you definitely have to add a 1993 <laughs> to the search term if you want to have any luck. That is the year in which this film came out. And because of that, this is the most weird ass, 80s ass, like, you know, bridge to 90s ass shit fucking cra- just absolute it, it essentially shows you how fine of a line tim burton walked mm-hmm. with batman and with all of his properties that were so successful back then even beetlejuice and everything to to create something great and how easy it would have been to make it just absolutely horrific uh, in terms of a product so there's so many mistakes on so many levels that <laughs> i if you've never heard of this movie or if you've like just maybe Uh, Just from like internet apocrypha or like following a bad movie YouTube channel or something. You've like kind of heard of it. Uh, This was a dark science fiction, satirical, like gross out body horror twist 
on the story of Super Mario Brothers. And this was, again, Super Mario World was had just come out or was about to come out. Like literally all people had to work on. It had come out. It had it come had out. Come yeah, out. Yoshi's well, there. I mean, that's where they got all the dinosaur yeah. shit from. Is Super Mario World was so dinosaur heavy and it did also hit me. I was like, oh yeah, the final world in Super Mario World it has this weird Bowser's nightclub <laughs> thing going on, which I kind of realized like is a little similar to the neon signed Dino Hatton yeah. that <laughs> the the film is set in. But basically, what I'm trying to get at is the co- I feel like the core mistake because I was this is one of the first movies I even saw in the theater. I was six or seven years old. My grandparents took me, and I was a fucking mark for Super Mario Brothers. I had all the games. They were like my treasured like objects. I had Super Mario Brothers bed sheets. I watched the Super Mario Brothers Super Show with Captain Lou Albano. And remember kids, if you do drugs, you'd go to hell and then you'd die. I was like all about it. So I was the target audience. I was literally yeah. all I had ever want. This, this was promised to be the ideal experience. And what this movie was, was so subverted and so warped and so disgusting and so like antithetical to what a six-year-old Mario Brothers fan would want from a Mario <laughs> Brothers movie. Oh yeah. That this the core mistake is, yeah, Batman came out and that was like a dark twist. There's like a whole bunch of other like dark reimaginings that yes. were popular at the time. Because then the, the kids are already going to go see it because it's Batman. So we got to make it for adults so that everyone will want to go see it. So the way they would do that is make it all weird and dark and twisted. Uh, and instead of like. But it doesn't work because it's no. Mario had just come out. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't an adult audience of people yes. that were like, man, I remember Mario. Wouldn't it be weird and cool if it was fun? Totally. No, it was literally just this it's it's like if you tried to do a dark twisted barney movie <laughs> when barney was out that's a like great it's, analogy. that's for nobody well and video games in general no adult knew what to do with them because they were just so you know if anything they were younger when atari was popular mm-hmm. so what do you do with any atari property in terms of turning it into a show or a movie or anything mm-hmm. like that and and immediately people saw dollar signs like we had animated the animated Mario and Zelda and stuff like that and it existed I remember my mom would keep Zelda fruit snacks in the mm-hmm. car waiting for me when I would get out of school and that was always my big treat and I oh, love that it was Zelda the themed. Nintendo cereal system where yes. it was a box from Ralston where one half was Mario cereal and the other yes. half was Link and Zelda Fuck cereal yeah, dude. yeah rules incredible so it was definitely like But this a was thing. baby shit. Mario yeah, was is baby for babies. Shit. Mario was for babies. <laughs> and video games was for babies. And they really had no idea, especially with the limited storytelling capabilities that Nintendo had in terms of just what could fit on a cartridge, there was very little to go with as well. I will also say though, in their defense, I don't I think it literally took till that first live action Sonic movie to do the kind of video game adaptation that would be like a huge Hollywood blockbuster for, you know, kids and parents alike, right? Mm-hmm. It really took decades since this movie came out to crack that code. Did they even crack the code or was it just enough adults grew up with video games sure. to like know what to do with them? Kind of both, because I will say at least, but going into that movie, uh, I think everyone had their hesitations because of just the history of video game ad- adapted films, you know. And yes, yes, I know Mortal Kombat. It was an anomaly, but really I would was. still say 
it really applied to a very specific demographic of like young teens. Yes. That that was very much on its own. Like you wouldn't go to one of those and see a lot of adults. You know what I mean? You really wouldn't. You would see that arcade culture group of kids at that movie theater freaking out over Mortal Kombat. They still hadn't cracked the like making this for entire families to enjoy mm-hmm. making this for. And I do agree though. It did. It did need to take so long, but they also had to develop the characters more as silly as that sounds. I mean, the new Mario has this wealth of video games and storylines and everything. And no, I'm not saying Mario's storylines have gotten that much more developed, but there are cutscenes. Bowser has much more of a personality mm-hmm. and say like the Wii Mario games or the, you know, uh, up through the switch, I mean, you yeah, know, yeah. Mario Odyssey has got character. It's got vibes. Yeah, it's got pacing. Totally. It's got a whole energy. I mean, that- shit, they didn't even have Mario 64 <laughs> with, like, the camera, uh, you know, situation. And, you know, there's so much personality was at, given to Mario, including a voice. Mm-hmm. Because the only voice they had to go off of was the, what, who played the live act, who played the live act? Captain Lou Albano. Captain Lou Albano. That's the only voice they had to go off of was like, hey, I'm just this crazy blah, 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 Hey, Paisan, give, yeah, yeah. give me a spaghetti. I'm going to beat the shit out of a, I am a brother. Which was funny because it actually, now that it hits me, Chris Pratt's kind of retroactively turning it back into that whereas for a while it was just it's a me it's a Mario (laughs) I mean that was always everyone knew that as I mean Mario just didn't even have that much of a voice back then much less a plot line or anything and you could twist and warp pun intended you already said warp once too I was going to say pun intended you could twist and warp all of these weird elements he's eating mushrooms he's going into pipes there are just strange like the levels in Mario 1 and the lost levels are get weird after a while you know and and much less Mario World that introduces all these dinosaurs Mm -hmm. and stuff but then you also have Mario 3 where it's like the setting is a play and it's all set pieces like they could have done a whole weird thing with that they did none of that though They just lost their minds, and it really came down to this. They hired the wrong directors, and then the the script approach was from all angles. They were double-teaming, Eiffel-towering, gang-banging this script to death. Mm -hmm. And this poor, poor, you know, I would say, come on rough times script that was raised wrong in the wrong house, in the wrong part of town, ended up in the wrong hands, the wrong people. And all of a sudden they've just book in a bukkake scene choking to death. You know what I mean? Is this, is this working for you? Uh, yes. Is this metaphor yes. Working? I would call what happened to the Mario brothers franchise during the production <laughs> of this movie, a horrific uh, pornographic display <laughs> of raw bodily disgust. <laughs> Yeah, just it's I love and it really comes down to some powers to be being like it needs to be like really for kids and clean and and silly and 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 goofy. And then this other side being like, no, we're taking a dark twist to it. And they never, ever just came down to a decision Mm -hmm. on what it should be. And they kept just trying to twist it back and forth. And then these directors were not trained enough, had not done enough work before signing on to a 40 million dollar giant Hollywood blockbuster picture. And then the producers were actually too enabling. They were too supportive in this funny way until the bitter end when they finally had to step in and like finish the movie for the directors, essentially. And the last piece of the puzzle that I really think makes the 1993 Super Mario Brothers movie as just upsettingly bizarre as it could be is, yes, there's all these tonal inconsistencies. Yes, there are these bizarre, almost 
Like they, they'll just say like, hey, you're the thing from the game. And it's just this grotesque entity that has nothing to do with the game. And you're just supposed to sit there yeah. and be like, why is that toad? <laughs> why is that man with a guitar toad? Yeah, like, why is that a why is that a Goomba? Yeah, but, yeah, yeah that's that not a Goomba? a Goomba. I know what Goombas are. That is a distinctly different, weird-looking thing that you're calling a Goomba. Besides all of that, on screen, you have an incredible cast with Bob Hoskins, Dennis Hopper, John Leguizamo, and uh, Fisher Stevens and Richard Edson. Unbelievable cast. Unbelievable crew. Unbelievable crew of like legendary <laughs> makeup design, <laughs> animatronics workers, set decorators, like all. So there's all this money on screen and the detail oh my God. and the world building. If you like look around, if you just hit pause and see like all the signage and political slogans, like there is a deeply considered world happening in service of gibberish. And it just, yeah. it just takes it to that one extra level beyond just a bad movie to like an actual anomalous event within our culture. So I, for my gush, I mean, I know we kind of talked about how this hit us personally. I have this weird memory of this movie in that I cannot believe it somehow slipped out of my grasp, the movie theater experience of this. Unless I'm blocking it out, I'm almost certain I did not see this in the movie theater. And I'm not really sure why, other than maybe I just, there was no way for me to convince my parents to let me see this. They were definitely very, and even still, they look at video games in that shitty way that boomers, mm-hmm. uh, some boomers manage to look at video games. They still look at it as this like lower form of entertainment, this like thing that's for kids or this thing that's just at least rots not your brain. for them. Rots your brain. Yeah, rots your brain, whatever. I mean, they're not like trying to, you know, they don't like hate that I play video games. They just don't get I mean, it, I'm you know? sure. So Holden, I can see that. Have you asked them if they hate that you play video games? Uh, well, actually, yeah, maybe they do hate <laughs> that. Well, now that I'm making money off of it, technically, oh, they yeah. probably don't hate it as much. But yeah, they definitely don't fucking get it. And they, they, Never did, never will. And that is absolutely fine. How, like, they couldn't believe I was like trying to explain that I went to see a Street Fighter tournament <laughs> in a theater, <laughs> you know, I'm mean, like in a giant space. They're like, what is this? What's happening? Anywho, so I probably just couldn't convince them to watch it while at the same time, uh, just getting the review, you know, it was undeniable the reviews coming in. It was just, uh, it was, it was a shit. Sh- it got a terrible reaction from the very beginning, mm-hmm. you know? So it was kind of like, so then I remember like waiting for it to come out on like HBO or something like that. I kind of have a vague memory of being semi hyped to at least finally watch it. And then just being mortally confused as to what was going on. I think I probably also was the kind of movie I saw on daytime TV, like hanging out on the, ca- lazing on the couch in different chunks and stuff. And then kind of slowly over time, pieced it together. Like, I don't know if I ever actually watched the full movie until like we just did the other week, for, you know, for or last week for this episode. But Jake, you have a movie theater experience. Oh, I remember it starkly. Again, I was six <laughs> or seven years old. My beloved grandparents, Grandpa Henry and Grandma Shirley, took me to see it. I had begged them, begged them to take me because uh, one of the things about this movie is they marketed the shit out of it, especially when they knew it was bad. And uh, there was action figure ads all over the television on Saturday morning. There were ads in every comic book in the in that specific early 90s thing. Had a full page Hoskins and Leguizamo kind of just like, what were they? Yeah, just Leguizamo giving a big thumbs up while holding a wrench. And it's just, yeah. this ain't no game. Super Mario Brothers in theaters. 
And so very cautiously, because they had no concept of video games. They didn't even know what a Mario was. But that for their beloved little Jakey, they took me to the theater and I had a bad time because it was, as we have extensively said, the opposite of anything a child would want from a Mario movie. And they were so upset by just how disgusting and nonsensical and ugly and harsh and weird the movie was that it was like the first time I remember seeing my grandparents like not smiling. Do you understand how primal this is? <laughs> like there is no more like, I mean, again, I if I was very lucky in my family life. There's no more like source of like love and genial like happiness than like oh, grandma and grandpa are here. And like they were just like silent and just kind of like detached for the rest of the visit after we left that theater. <laughs> and like, by the way, can we just add with the grandparents setting, there's this like weird BDSM element mm-hmm. in this movie. It's like weirdly sexual in this bizarre way. There, it's also just actively gross. It's like there's almost there's almost um, there's a there's a slime. There's a slime that literally covers everything on screen. Yeah, yeah. It's it's there's this Cronenberg element to the whole thing that is completely mind boggling. And it was back in the day, and it like works really well for the body horror genre for stuff like Hellraiser and things like that where it's like actively trying to disturb you but when it's supposed to be this licensed big four families property it just feels awful like why is this woman taking a shot with a worm in it why is the fungus not just this like cool looking mushroom why is it this weird like cummy looking thing that's just disgusting and making gross noises. Everything about this is repellent mm-hmm. and repulsive. And what's so funny is in con- stark contrast, so much of what Nintendo does is try to create these simple, mm-hmm. appealing to the mm-hmm. eye, vibrant, colorful set pieces that are just incredibly engaging for kids and families alike. And the fact that they would just turn their back on that aesthetic just because of the mere existence of Tim Burton's Batman is so wild to me it's, in hindsight. It really, it's it's just one of the greatest, getting to do the research for this episode has been a massive source of closure in my life because this thing fucking haunted me yeah. for my entire life because it is so just upsetting to look at and watch and like how this could have happened has always been in the back of my mind. And as we're going to get into, these are the reasons. This is how this insane, over-budget monstrosity came into being at the peak of the Nintendo Entertainment System's kind of uh, just championship run in America. I am excited to talk about this. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
All right, here we go. Super Mario Bros., the 1993 filmic experience. Let's take it <laughs> all the way back to the How early... dare you? That is a term I reserve only for the Avatar series. <laughs> <laughs> and one I only reserve for... Well, see, for me, I refer to 2019's Cats as a filmic experience. Uh, I put yes. them definitely in the same genre oh, absolutely. of just body horror, uh, not on purpose. <laughs> So to say that Nintendo was wildly successful in the early 90s is an understatement. We've got the Game Boy hitting the scene in 1989 in the U.S. The Super Nintendo, with its pack-in game, Super Mario World, hit the video game market with a bang in 1991. So they, they are on fucking fire at this point. They also noticed from a distance how successful their property might be in the realm of Hollywood movies. That was with uh, The Wizard, another movie I, I wonder that I, I doubt we could get enough on to do an episode, but I've always wanted to do an episode on The Wizard because it was such a big part of my childhood. Yeah, we'll see how this goes. We'll see how this one goes. Please, you have to click on this episode to get get The Wizard, okay? (laughs) The Wizard starring Fred Savage and Christian Slater. It introduced, it was like a weird commercial for Nintendo. It introduced Mm -hmm. the Power Glove, which was terrible, but it also gave you your first look at Super Mario 3, which I still, like, remember Mm -hmm. that moment when I got that experience. And I say from a distance because Universal bought the rights to use the Nintendo logo, equipment, and gameplay footage for a mere $100,000, and Nintendo had no control over their use. And if you know anything about Nintendo, uh, they like control over their own shit. So this led Bill White, director of advertising and public relations at the time at Nintendo of America, to take pitches for a Mario movie from various studios. Enter production team Jake Eberts and Roland Joffe. These are two major players in this nightmare film. Joffe had made a name for himself by directing the Oscar-nominated films The Killing Fields and The Mission. Eberts produced The Killing Fields as well, and a slew of other successful films at that point, including Chariots of Fire, Gandhi, This is Spinal Tap. These are pedigree uh, producers, not newbies, Mm -hmm. unlike our directors we're about to meet. But also solidly within the, like, arts and like very important movies thing yes like they did not make popcorn shit yeah for like anybody yeah it's all pedigreed shit even though there were bigger studios with more skin in the game than Joffe and Eberts they managed to get their pitch over Nintendo successfully partly by offering Nintendo all merchandising profits in the deal this is an incredible thing you can find this on the internet archive but uh the 2014 documentary Super Mario Brothers, This Ain't No Video Game, which was uh, attached to the Blu-ray re-release that came out a couple of years ago. Joffe starts it by explaining he needed a family-friendly popcorn hit. That was like his next, like uh, the next thing that he wanted on his belt to secure his production company. Uh, Light Motive is what they were called. Mm. And he just straight up flew to Kyoto and met with... Famously hard-ass Yakuza-adjacent weirdo Minoru Arakawa, the uh, CEO, Mr. Sunglasses, whose his name has come up a bunch of times, and he gets a meeting with him. And he sits down with him, and Arakawa's like, we have, like, offers from Disney and Universal and, like, Paramount. Like, why on earth should we give you the rights? And according to Joppy, he just leaned back and said, I'm the only one who's here. <laughs> and that apparently gave Arakawa... The like the 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 classic like ah you got balls kid <laughs> like yeah ah good one you suck son of a bitch all right I'm in you <laughs> motherfucker. <laughs> 
I mean, in Japanese, you know, whatever the Japan, the staid old Japanese man equivalent of you motherfucker is. Uh, don't even try to do whatever that is, by the way. I don't want to hear your <laughs> version of whatever that can be. Uh, Javi is. All right. Javi said they looked at the movie as some sort of strange creature, intrigued to see if it could walk or not. They also pitched a darker, edgier take on the bros, like how Tim Burton redefined Batman for a young audience in 1989. So that was a part of the pitch from the very beginning, mind you. The issues with production start almost immediately. They land director Greg Beeman, whose first film, Licensed to Drive, was a big hit in the late 80s. However, he ends up getting dropped. Some speculate due to the failure of his follow-up film, which was Mom and Dad Save the World, Mm. which is definitely a movie I watched and never laughed at many times in the middle of a Saturday afternoon because it was on Showtime or Cinemax. Actually, I never had Showtime, so Cinemax or HBO. Harold Ramis and Danny DeVito were approached to make it. DeVito was actually offered to star as well as direct, uh, but they end up turning it down. He was replaced with husband and wife directing team. Here we go. Here oh, they come. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, there's a bunch of fucking crazy shit that happens before we bring in uh, who you're about to bring in. But one of the things is they were really struggling to find a Mario. And uh, at one point, Tom Hanks was in the running and they turned down Tom Hanks because at this exact point in the 90s, he was bombing left and right. This was after Big. This was after Splash. He had stuck mostly to comedies and didn't have his big Philadelphia like uh, Forrest Gump comeback era. Uh And so even though he was an avowed Mario player and was deeply interested they did not want him for it. Obviously, DeVito was a natural choice. He's basically Mario. Right, He's right. basically Mario, but uh, wanted a final copy of the script, and they did not have one ready for it. The first version of the screenplay that they actually uh, got a hold of was written by Barry Morrow, who was the uh, writer of Rain Man. And literally, he ended up writing a, get this, A tale of two brothers on a lengthy road trip that's more of a character study about them coming to terms with each other. And it was apparently so similar to Rain Man that they uh, called the script version Drain Man. Yes, absolutely. This is true. There is no copy of this that exists. Uh, Then there was another script by Jim Genowine and Tom S. Parker that dates to about 1991 that could have been the dark fantasy retelling of Mario that maybe this movie could have been. I actually skimmed through this one and it has amazing points of like connection between Mario and Luigi where uh, Mario talks about resenting having to take care of Luigi after their mother died and Luigi coming to terms with like, uh, you know, being a burden on Mario and uh, there's massive amounts of like video game references. They fight a piranha plant. They fight the Hammer Brothers. They go in pipes. Weirdly enough, the pendant, the idea that it all is based on Daisy or in this version, Hildy having a magic pendant and kind of uh, coming together and that being the MacGuffin for Bowser to m- want to marry her and then get the crown of invincibility. There's There's beats, there's notes. It plays very much like Wizard of Oz or Shrek, or The Princess Bride, where it's like a, a kind of like, you know, because Mario and Luigi are outsiders from Brooklyn, but they're in this fairy tale world, and they're like kind of making fun of it as they go through it. But it really feels super duper close to what 
maybe a child would have wanted from a Mario series. Totally, totally, yeah. That was the script that was set up for the directors that were coming in that I was about to introduce, and um, they just immediately throw it out. These two directors are Rocky Morton and Annabelle Jankel. Morton and Jankel are British And they're mostly known for music videos. They directed videos for Talking Heads, George Harrison, Miles Davis. This is still like music videos before music videos were a thing, in other words. They also were known for their television special. This is the most important thing. The original Max Headroom, 20 Minutes into the Future, which tells the iconic character's origin story and also explains why the fuck... Dennis Hopper looks like that <laughs> in the movie. That was such a mind-blowing moment. Look up Dennis Hopper in Super Mario Bros. movie 1993, and then look up Max Headroom, and you're like, oh, that's why they made that completely weird choice in terms of what his costume and everything. Mm-hmm. They also did do one film before this. It was called DOA, starring Dennis Quaid. And it was kind of known, you know, they were known for being this very punk rock, on the edge, artsy directing duo, but that also were pretty good at integrating new cutting edge digital effects into their filmic experiences. And that is why I think Joffe selected them, especially because I think he saw that they could potentially do this like Tim Burton Batman thing to Super Mario. Yeah, And I think you're right. I think that that script that you described, the Wizard of Oz script, that was the script that should have been made. But instead, Morton and Jenkel, they immediately toss that script out. They hire two writers named Parker Bennett and Terry Runt. They were known for a thriller comedy called Mystery Date. This script, it is actually liked by Nintendo and the producers. People are feeling good about it. However, the directing team, though they seem to have it, uh, given the green light at first, they turn around and go, no, 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 no. This needs to be more like Ghostbusters. This needs to be more in a different direction than it is. So here, we're sending it back for another rewrite. I think maybe Ghostbusters 2 is like a little bit of how Dino Hatton comes to be. No, um, so the- it's it's definitely, it's Parker Bennett and Terry Runt are the absolute guys that immediately are like, yeah, 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 Mushroom Kingdom. Yeah, 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 mu- yeah, 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 Turtle Shells. Yeah, 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 Warp Pipes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever the actual stuff in the game is, I feel like what people really want is a scathing critique of New York City in the 80s, a den of crime and sex and commercialism. It really needs to get taken down a notch. And so much of their plot devolves into cultural commentary and pastiche parody. And it's really like just... Just They just throw all the video games on the back burner for a very long time. So this rewrite introduces an alternative dimension in which humans evolve from dinosaurs. Awful. Of which King Koopa, a.k.a. Bowser, is a corrupt president of the dystopian Dino Hatton. And Dino Hatton is just such a dumb fuck name, too. I, I, I can't wait to stop saying the word Dino Hatton. Well, the, a previous version of the script had it as Dino York. Yes, yes. Morton said, I wanted the film to be more sophisticated. At the time... There was a lot of anti-video game sentiment. I wanted to make a film that would open it up and get parents interested in video games. And I kind of want to say this movie may have actually set video games back several years Mm -hmm. in terms of being generally accepted by culture, especially older members of culture. Then the backers pressured the directors to again rewrite the film, and they hired two other guys to do it and gave them an action thriller akin to Die Hard, 
that no one liked. Mm-hmm. So this, and then apparently the second draft of that, they were like, "This sucks. Do it again." The second draft apparently was very strong. Nintendo, the producers and directors loved it, and it even got Bob Hoskins and John Leguizamo on board as Mario and Luigi, as well as Dennis Hopper for the role of King Koopa. We're going to get into more of that later. Let's just stick with the script for now, because it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. Then, just a couple of months from the first day of shooting, producers Ebert and Jaffe got scared the movie was too dark. And I think this, I believe this has to do with the fact that they pulled in Disney for distribution. Mm -hmm. And I think it was actually Disney that was like, hey, we're down, but like... What the fuck is this? Yeah, yeah. No, definitely. It was uh, one of Disney's live action imprints, not Buena Vista. I think this was Hollywood Pictures is uh, the Disney. You know, it's if you remember uh, from your VHS childhood, that like Sphinx logo. Yeah, I believe it was that imprint of Disney. But still, it seems like it was pressure from the Disney uh, money bags people that like was really kind of leaned into them. They were like, all right, we understood that you were getting a little wacky with this children's movie for children, but uh, we just got a daily or two, and this is fucking nuts. Well, and this is the thing. This is when the film was officially doomed. (laughs) Because our producers, last-minute hire writers Ed Solomon, who wrote on Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and Ryan Rowe, who wrote on a movie called Tapeheads, and they put a more fun, lighthearted spin on the script. And these producers do not run this by the directors. The rift starts here. Mm -hmm. There's clearly a rift in terms of communication, in terms of who's making this movie and how this movie is getting made. And it really, I think, fully starts here and creates a domino effect that is the shit show that is Super Mario Bros. 1993. Because the directors are unaware and everybody shows up on set for the first day of suiting and many people are like, this is not the script I signed on for. <laughs> and that's an insane thing to have happen the first day of shooting. Not only just for the actors, which is a huge deal. You rehearse, yes. you memorize. There's so much like the craft of acting needs you to at least have some understanding of what you are going to do before you do it. But even the set designers, even the costume people, yes. there were scenes that were completely uh, ripped out of the script. There were scenes that were added. There was all these sort of things that they just had to like deal with day one in this incredibly impressive set that they had set up. Right. And we'll talk more about the crazy studio that they built in North Carolina and all that stuff. I, I was going to get now into the casting. Oh, absolutely. Element of all of this. So let's get into that. Bob Hoskins, let's start with him. Started out as a stage actor in England. He kind of just fell into the whole acting gig. He was a natural. This led to film and television. He got work all through the 70s and 80s. And a lot of American kids had already come to know him for the film Who Framed Roger Rabbit, as well as Hook. He was already kind of getting this name for himself as a child actor. In fact, he was trying to get away from that. It took a lot of a lot of coercion to get him to play the role of Mario because he claimed he, quote, didn't want to become like Dick Van Dyke, you know, become fully associated with just making kids stuff. And so the producers kept sending him rewrites on the script until finally he said yes. Hoskins said, I didn't even know it was a game. It was my kids that told me. His kids oh then my. showed him the game. Oh, God, please. His kids then showed him the game. He said, and I saw this thing jumping up and down, and I thought, I used to pl- play King Lear. <laughs> it's there. You can find the clip of uh, Hoskins saying this. I think it was in, during one of the like the televised like making of Mario Brothers specials that aired. But like 
there's something about him in his natural accent, like the actual sense of like mourning and regret in his voice. He's like, I used to play King Lear. Like, just, it's so <laughs> devastating. I know, it's, that's the thing, he's British. He also had this to say in a later interview. The worst thing I ever did, Super Mario Brothers. It was a fucking nightmare. The whole experience was a nightmare. It had a husband and wife team directing whose arrogance had been mistaken for talent. After so many weeks, their own agent told them to get off the set. Fucking nightmare. Fucking idiots. (laughs) More on the getting off the set thing later. I love that, though. Whose arrogance had been mistaken for talent is such a great, great quote. John Leguizamo portrayed Luigi. He was an up-and-comer at the time. He'd been working pretty steadily since the mid-80s as a stand-up and theater actor in NYC, while also breaking into film and television. However, the roles he would most become known for had not happened yet in his career. Leguizamo said... It was one of the first video game movies, so it was tough. It was a first. Nobody had ever done it before, and they didn't really know how to go about it, so we were pioneers. Leguizamo was cast after the director saw him at Second City, Jankel said. It was not specifically scripted to be cast with a Hispanic or Latino actor, but it made perfect sense that the Mario Bros. themselves should be this contemporary, unconventional family. So the small unit of just two couldn't be pegged as one thing or the other. Yeah, I don't know, but maybe the part where the character's name is Luigi? Wouldn't that you can have, indicate? You can have a Hispanic Luigi. You it would can? be unlikely. It would be weird. You can have a Jewish Luigi. I want you, you to can track have down a, a Spanish Luigi for me right now, Jake. Go on Facebook and find me a Hispanic Luigi. I well, dare I don't you. think this will be weird, but I'm just going to type into Hispanic men named Luigi. <laughs> uh, it's it's going to be fine. It's going to be it's going to be great. Okay. Okay. According to uh, mynamestatistics.com, <laughs> of the people in America named Luigi, at least 8% of them 8%? are of Hispanic origin. You know how many people in this country are named Luigi? I mean, the it exists. I accept a your apology. I accept <laughs> your apology. And to all my muy bueno Hispanic Luigis out there, let me just say, I mama mia. I love how little this quote holds up in, in the modern era of Hollywood casting. Leguizamo said, You always see a lot of Italians playing Latin people like Al Pacino did in Scarface. Now it's our turn. That's great. That's a great line. It's fantastic. I love it. And I love John Leguizamo, too. So, and Bob Hoskins and Dennis Hopper as King Koopa, one of the most baffling castings in Hollywood history. Why would they offer it? And why did he say yes? Of course, it was all for a money grab. And Hopper was uh, talked to, has talked about it as such with a funny anecdote mm. that had his six-year-old asking why he would ever take that role. And he responded, so you could have shoes. And then his funny quip is that his six-year-old responded, I don't need shoes that badly. It was a <laughs> whole thing. That was on Conan. He said that on Conan. Yeah, yeah, that was a good late night talk show thing. Uh, also, though, you have a uh, shout out to Samantha Mathis who played Princess Daisy. Fisher Stevens, uh, who unfortunately... <laughs> Again, a casting that doesn't hold up uh, was in Short Circuit. And Richard Edson from uh, Do the Right Thing, among many other movies. They played Iggy Cuba and Spike Koopa, respectively. Oh, shit. Also, Dan Castellaneta is the voice of the narrator at the beginning. It's kind of fun. Well, they added that in post. That was like a weird thing. Yeah, and you better believe Bob Hoskins wasn't going to do anything in fucking post. That guy got the hell out of there as soon as that movie was done. Don't forget famous American musician Mojo Nixon as Toad who uh, was reimagined as a street 
protest performer who gets immediately arrested and fucking body morphed into a horrific lumbering Goomba man <laughs> in a role that was originally offered to Tom Waits. Yes, I'm so glad he turned it down. <laughs> it would have been, a, it's the only thing this movie is missing. Yeah, it's true. Like, hey, Mr. Mario, what are you doing? <laughs> Got a mushroom stew a brew. <laughs> Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So everyone shows up. Totally different script. Everyone's scratching their head. Parker Bennett and Terry Runt are then rehired to fix the script during the shooting process. According to them, they just wanted to visit because it was like one of their first movie projects that got produced and they thought it would be neat. Oh my God. And it was uh, Jenko and Morton, that the directors that saw them was like, oh, hey, uh, could you like rewrite a bunch of shit for us? Like right now, like right, right now, like, hey, uh, like right now, could you just like fix this, please? Like right now. And they were like, oh, okay. Also, apparently they ended up being middlemen for like the go-between for the producers and the directors and the actors and just ended up in this awful position Mm -hmm. due to circumstance. I genuinely feel bad for Parker Bennett and Terry Rutt, like Mm -hmm. very, very genuinely bad for them. Apparently Parker Bennett realized during production, during this very ramshackle uh, as they went along rewrite stage that they had completely lost like any fucking connection to the games. And (laughs) so if you've ever been wondering like, Hey, why out of nowhere did they just like acknowledge kind of something from the games and then like just move on? Right. That was usually uh, Bennett just like trying to add like some fan service for the actual Nintendo fans in there. Hoskins said it started off a very good script, but the first day they threw the script away and they said, we'll do this our way. And when they're gone over $10 million, Their own agents threw them off the set. Then we said, we've got to finish this film ourselves. The editor came down and said, I don't know what we are going to do. We haven't one single finished scene. So basically in a week, in two weeks, we had to cobble together the film. And what could have been a very, very interesting film went up. Rubbish, complete rubbish. And we'll get more into that process. That was a bit of a foreshadowing. There's also stories like this one from Richard Edson. The night we were supposed to do our first scene, which was the night scene of us watching Daisy on the street, The dialogue that was written for us was really lame. So Fisher and I devised this plan that will give them an alternative. 
We'll write our own alternative, and if we have time, we'll do theirs, and then we'll do ours. So we did theirs, and it was predictably lame. But we did it the best we could, and then we said, hey, Annabelle Rocky, we took the liberty to improve the dialogue. You want to hear it? And they said, yeah, yeah, let's just shoot it. And we got all set up. So we went into our dialogue, and it got laughs, and they loved it, and that was eventually used. But from that moment on, we got permission and the license to rewrite all of our dialogue, come up with new scenes, whatever we want to do. Oh they were God. more than happy to do it. And so Fisher and I would get together and we would work on scenes and we would come up with our own dialogue and it got to the point where we wouldn't even do their dialogue anymore. And and that's terrible. Yeah. That's a horrible, horrible way to shoot a movie. Letting two of the actors just for their own scenes completely like rewrite the movie. The and, characters and, you know, of Iggy and Spike yeah. are so weird in this movie. They're yes. supposed to be like the kind of out in the streets goons that are like acting on the will of King Koopa. But Fisher and Richard give their characters so much weird like panache and personality that all of their scenes stick out like a sore thumb. There's this out of nowhere twist where they are given super intelligence in a very belabored scene, and that does not pay off because no. they are still bumbling weird goons, but now they just say fancy vocabulary words. And also just the whole plot point where they switch sides and become helpful to Mario and Luigi uh, uh, instead of King Koopa is just incredibly weird and doesn't get sold at all in the film. And a lot of that is to do with the fact that there is an entire rep cut out that oh, we could well, talk okay. about. Okay, let's talk about this right now. The amount of freedom, I really think that this really speaks to, I, I you've definitely been on weird projects before where like something that is making a much beleaguered like cast and crew laugh gets put in the movie because at the time in front of all these overworked, overtired, just like miserable people, it made everyone laugh on set. Right. And then it goes in the movie right. and it just doesn't work the same. hundred percent. So they write an original rap song explaining why they are switching sides and it is so bad. And it's literally has like, and again, I believe these two guys wrote lyrics like, uh, what was it? <laughs> oh God. Koopa, the party poopa, the poopa scoopa. Oh, it's so bad. It's a crying shame. We're playing his Super game. Mario Archive, they found it. They found the scene. It exists, and, and we can play it for you guys. So here is the horrible uh, <laughs> rap, lost rap, from the Super Mario Bros. movie. April, take it away. <laughs> you realize what our society has become? You ever get the feeling you're an automatic pilot? You're going through the motions like waves in the ocean? That life is a series of brainless notions, and you want to feel something more than empty emotions. When we met two plumbers. Who had an idea. They showed us the lake. And the new frontier. Mario. And Luigi. They know what's right. We got to take a stand and put up a fight. Well, stop. And think, think this through. through. It's time to get rid of you, you know, know who. who. A radical development is taking place. Iggy. And Spike will, will set, set the pace. Koopa. The, the party poopa. The Poopa Scoopa. It's a crying shame. We're playing his game. He's got us so tame. It really is lame. We're all so dumb being under his thumb. Be proud reptilians. We number in the millions. Look at these Goombas. Shutting us down. The rule of force. Is the rule of this clown. Koopa. The party Poopa. Extra Wake up, people. Wake up. Wake up, And now, Jake. 
Jake, 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 Jake. Well, we're talking about Mario Universe terrible rap. And we just had April play Played a bad a rap. bad rap from a different. Well, I would argue the rap. Well, wait, where I'm are you going with this, Holden? I don't understand. Play. I don't know. I you what know would you I have, have April to do play this. In this you situation. know I have to do this. April, <laughs> you know what the fucking time it is. Flavor, flavor, hit Anywho. God, I need a cigarette. That was good. That was good. It's the coconut gun, man. It gets me every time. I, I saw you. You fire in spurts whenever you hear it. <laughs> All right. Please, Pete. We don't have to tell about how I manipulate my own genital area while we listen to the DK rap, okay? They can imagine it their own. There's probably kids in the... I mean, yes, we've probably said the F word about 25 times already, but there's probably kids in the car. We don't have to have this kind of dialogue uh, while the, while the uh, people Shout listen to, to the, the show. Cool dad that's playing this in the minivan in front of their kids. You're a cool dad and your kids love you. <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's too much freedom. It sounds like that'd be a cool ensemble experience, but it was like, no, that was because nothing was how it should have been. Nothing was in a way that it should have been in terms of the writing and directing and everything. So you just have these like. You know, I hate to say medium talents, mm-hmm. but at least when it comes to writing funny dialogue, <laughs> they shouldn't have been holding the fucking wheel. You know what I mean? So while some worked feverishly to try and fix this disaster, others resorted to onset meltdowns, particularly Dennis Hopper, who was signed on to shoot for five weeks and ended up having to do 17 weeks Jeez. instead. He was trapped in this movie, just like Whoopi Goldberg ended up trapped in Theodore Rex. According to writer Parker Bennett, we had rewritten some scene of Dennis Hopper's to cut out a few words. He exploded because he had taken the time and the brain cells to memorize the scene that was there before. And we'd cut like four sentences out of it or something to try to save more time. The producers were like, immediately come right now to the makeup place. So they go to Dennis Hopper. The producers and the director basically shoved us at Dennis Hopper for him to yell at us. They threw us under the bus, and he hollered at us for literally at least 20 minutes. There was apparently another instance that involved a 45-minute screamathon from Hopper towards the directing team before they broke for lunch. That turned into another two-hour screamathon on behalf of Hopper at the producers, at the directors, at anyone else he could find. Generally, this was all centered around these constant last-minute line changes that were not communicated to Hopper. There were also just like, sometimes this happens on sets. I remember in the behind the scenes for Kubrick's The Shining, there was always like totally new pages every day because they were constantly rewriting scenes because Stanley Kubrick, just such a perfectionist, just kept tweaking. That was one thing, but like, they're handed worse scenes. Like mm-hmm. the dialogue's just markedly t- more terrible than it was the night before. It's never an improvement. So it's like, not only did I spend this time to memorize this stuff, but the new stuff you're handing to me is absolute dog shit because it was written in this weird last minute way where they're just trying to, you know, plug all these holes in the mm-hmm. ship and the water's coming in and it's just a disaster. Are, are we going to talk about the truck incident with uh, Leguizamo and Hoskins? Yes, I was going to say another way folks coped were with good old drugs and alcohol. Hoskins and Leguizamo drank their way through the Scotch, shooting of this movie. Scott specifically. Uh, Leguizamo talks about 
how because of the ramshackle, poorly organized shoot, they would have to stay on set for hours even when they weren't needed. And uh, Leguizamo, you know, in his uh, classic uh, Cockney impression that he's known for, said that Hoskins would kind of come in and be like, how about you and me kind of do a little uh, reviving, (laughs) which was Cockney slang for imbibing, which was slang for let's go drink scotch in my trailer. (laughs) So yeah, they would get hammered and that led to a bit of an incident involving Hoskins' finger and a stunt with a car. They had to like jump into this car and drive away real fast. Leguizamo hammered, hits the acceleration and the brakes too quickly on the car. The door slams on the car on Hoskins' finger and it breaks it. And so you can actually see his cast on his finger throughout in various scenes throughout the movie. It's a pale pink just yeah cast on his arm that you know blinking you you know i never noticed it when watching it but yeah it's there oh yeah for sure weirdly enough do you know had an amazing time on set at this movie lance hendrickson who you might remember as bishop from the aliens franchise Ah. uh he has like a fun little cameo as the uh king at the end of the movie after he gets like d fungal testicled and he describes uh demanding a box of rice krispies so that he can do that thing in the movie where he coughs and it like shoots spores out of his hand (laughs) and as he wrapped up he looked over to the makeup lady and he claims he saw the most beautiful pair of legs he ever saw and that woman in the makeup crew turned out to be his future wife, and they are still married to this. Oh, day. at least some good things came out of it. There's a couple of silver linings, actually, and that's one. That's our first one, so that's good. Let's go. Oh, no, wait. Never mind. They divorced in 2006. Okay. Well, they, they, <laughs> there you go. I mean, it's, you know, but they had a good run. I mean, come on. You got Yeah, you, they had a great they run. They got to enjoy intercourse with each other probably more than... 40 to 50 times, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Which is wonderful. There's actually a really great article that came out in the Los Angeles Times uh, that was the first indication to the industry and the public at large that this movie was going to be a complete and utter disaster because it was written and put out like during filming. In it are little examples like this that really showed what was happening on set at the time. During one production meeting, the two directors had insulted director of photography Dean Simler by giving him their list of camera setups for a week's shoot, plus specific lenses and light readings. Why'd you hire me? shouted the Oscar winning cinematographer of Dances with Wolves. Uh, it just shows the incompetence of the director, or, or at least the director's inability, which is probably the most important thing for a director to do, their inability to understand like how to get everyone to work together and how to utilize everybody in the best way. They were just blind to that. So I think they were very DIY up to this point. Mm-hmm. Here's also a great one for you regarding Fiona Shaw, who plays Lena. King Koopa's like wife? Or what is what is she? She's like his gal Friday slash sexy secretary thing. It's a very weird original character that was brought in very early. Like she survived multiple drafts of the script. During a scene in the Boom Boom bar, they had instructed Shaw to sip on a shot glass containing a worm. Assuming the worm was fake, she'd done as described, only to find it wiggling from her lips. Shaw had maintained her professional composure until after the take. The directors loved it so much they'd ask her to do it again. She had reluctantly done so, and did it again and again. Apparently, the final straw for the director's reputation with the rest of the cast and crew came when Morton poured hot coffee all over an extra because he didn't think the extra looked dirty enough. 
There was also an incident where a stuntman's pants caught on fire from a stray spark during a scene, and an electrician almost died by grabbing a lever that was electrified and had to be physically kicked off of it in order to save his life. So, So this is all to say... When shit like this starts happening, there's nobody has faith at all in anything about the production. They don't feel safe. They don't feel like they have any sort of support in terms of the writing, in terms of the directing, really anything. And that's a really awful feeling to have. I'm trying to remember is I've definitely been in this situation before, like making a I think like making a play, mm-hmm. like a production of a play. I'm trying to remember which one it was, but we're, we're like. I literally don't even feel safe to be on the set because like there's just no oversight. Mm-hmm. Like there's clearly like no organization happening. And this is definitely that. It almost gets like a little scary and is why people would just start getting hammered all the time and stuff, you know? Just to add to the physical agony of this uh film, lots of characters had to be stuck in like sweltering makeup, lots of uh finicky animatronic puppets that are always a bitch to film. As you mentioned, the majority of the film was uh, kind of filmed in this massive abandoned concrete factory with like horrifyingly toxic dust filling the air anytime anything was shaken loose. And it was in the middle of summer and there was a record heat wave with the temperature in the set hitting 95 degrees on the regular. So like that wet sheen that everyone has, that's not just slime. Uh. These actors are sweating their asses off. <laughs> that ain't just slime. Yeah. That's what that's what the slogan should have been instead of this ain't no video. I also love the slogan being this ain't no video game. It's like, um, then yeah. why <laughs> I want it oh, to it's feel not like the, the video thing game. Yeah. I like. It's not the thing I love more than life itself. It's not the reason I would see this movie. It was totally the way that generation saw video games. Like it was like, mm-hmm. yeah, we're gonna make this. Way cooler than what a stupid video game is. This is going to be a real deal movie. Mm -hmm. Oh, it's so just like, ugh, disrespectful. uh, Just a shout out once again. Again, part of the the mystery, the enticing uh, duality of this movie is the Dino Hatton set is an engineering marvel. You know, it's multiple stories. It's like something out of a Mobius, you know, 2000 AD comic book, like a fully realized dystopian like couple of blocks of uh, fake New York heightened to its obscene degree with neon lights and cable cars and all these, well, weird bumper. Again, the idea that they're bumper cars is such a weird choice that has nothing (laughs) to do with anything, but they really let you know that these cars work like bumper cars. It's for kids. It's the result of production designer, David Snyder, who uh, famously worked on Blade Runner, like the iconic dystopian cityscape in cinema history put together Dino Hatton as well as Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. In fact, the scenes where we're in Koopa's office, where he looks down over the city, that's not a matte painting. That's not a, like, uh, imposed effect. Like, they are looking down at the set. It was, like, built all real to scale. There's so much effort involved. Different companies were responsible for different animatronics and different makeup effects because they kind of had to hodgepodge it all together to get all the work done. And so... There is like an amazing amount of uh, just solid craftsmanship. That Yoshi animatronic yeah. is insanely well articulated to the point where I thought it was stop motion at first, but no, it took yeah, 10 that's... coordinators to get all of the head and body movements to work as one. There's so much craftsmanship on screen that the fact that the plot is, again, I really must iterate, wet, 
dog shit found in the bottom of a dumpster. Yeah, the creature's designer and supervisor was Patrick Tatopoulos. Uh, he'd done work on Stargate, Man of Steel, a ton of stuff. And his Yoshi came in four versions. Stand-in, wireless model, half puppet for shots of the tongue, which was gross, and a fully functional model that needed the uh, nine to ten operators to function. It cost uh, around $500,000. By the way, this is apparently integrated into the film last minute because they were like, oh shit, Kids apparently like this dumb Yoshi thing. <laughs> Let's make a version of that. And apparently, this Yoshi was so cool that the Jurassic Park guys visited the set one day and were so impressed by Yoshi, they almost hired that department onto Jurassic Park to be like another wing of the dinosaur creators because it was so, so cool looking and the way it worked and everything. Going back to Dave Snyder, Dave Snyder uh, said, we've designed this film with the idea of looking at New York while on some mind-altering drugs. You know, Mario stuff. <laughs> this crazy set slash studio was created in the abandoned Ideal Cement Co. plant in Wilmington, North Carolina. There was already actually, it was the location for scenes from Terminator 2 and Ninja Turtles uh, that had been used before. However, they totally turned this space into a full-on like mini studio that has its own special effects lab, prop departments, everything built into it. Art director Walter P. Martitius said about the creation of Dino Hatton, Koopa gets a single glimpse of Manhattan at the beginning of the movie. And this inspires him to recreate it as Dino Hatton. However, he didn't get it quite right. The place is twisted, off balance, different, and he doesn't even know it. You know, mm. Super Mario Brothers. <laughs> With this choice in mind, the directors pushed forward with this insane, gritty, cyberpunk aesthetic. This includes bikers, strippers, other seedy elements. A little the old lady who's mugging people yes, at gunpoint. The, the costume designers dressed extras and even major characters in leather fetish gear and fishnet tights. A full-on scene with Mario and Luigi getting all horny with strippers apparently had to be cut out of the film. There were all these attempts at doing like way dirtier stuff in the movie. Prop designer Simon Merton said, It can get confusing and somewhat crazy, but two directors give you two points of view. They have very, very fertile minds, but they're constantly changing into newer, better ideas. So I rush things to completion before they change again. So it just gives you a taste of like they're they're They actually referred to the directors as the Hydra because they, it just felt like <laughs> one there were head so didn't many, know what the other was doing. Yeah, every head is just screaming something different at them and they're just changing everything. There was no cohesion even between the directors themselves. And then there's the whole baffling fungus thing. We've mentioned it a few times, but to just clarify, because that is such a weird choice, in Super Mario, you have the mushroom. It is such an iconic looking thing. I can see it in my head as I talk about it right now, right? It is one of the most iconic things in Mario. On the cover of Mario games, he's holding the mushroom up. It's just such a specific, specific design choice. And they twist it and change it into this cummy goo <laughs> sort of thing. Robert Joffe said, Rocky and Annabelle invented this idea that the old king had gotten devolved into a kind of primal organism and a few of the cells escaped and had to start from scratch and begin growing into fungus, but fungus with a conscious mind. Uh, I have more on this, but Jake, did you catch any of that in the viewing of this film? Uh, yeah, no, trust <laughs> the fungus was one of the taglines for the movie. And throughout the film, there are these, as you described, 
immensely cum-like extensions and slimy growths that are constantly following and helping the Mario characters along. And it, the very idea of de-evolution rays and the and the evolution chambers yeah. and all this shit where all this body horror is happening is so fucking weird. <laughs> and it definitely had to have come from like, the Max Headroom team just like wanting some kind of cool sci-fi shit in their movie. Totally. <laughs> and it, it sucks up so much oxygen that by the end of the movie, like the day is saved by Mario and Luigi shooting super scope de-evolution beams at Dennis Hopper's face. And he like morphs into this melting disgusting vomit pile. Yeah. It's so fucking gross and weird. Chaffee said, as each script developed, the fungus was sort of a metaphor for the mushroom element in a Nintendo game. Mushrooms and fungus are in the same family. The metaphor for the mushrooms is the fungus, and as time went on, it became a character. All of a sudden, it's like a gigantic character, and it became this deposed king of this world that Koopa has taken over. So it developed, and we had a company go in and do a survey, and they did a report and came up with five stages of growth of this fungus. This is what uh, was followed up after this quote in the Los Angeles Times article. They went on to print, many are hoping Joffe will step in and cut the fungus. (laughs) (laughs) I just love that they're all on set being like, but can we just, it just makes no sense. Can we just not do it? Can we just not waste all of this time on this, the special effects and everything that goes into creating this Come slime because it, it is a plot point. It just means nothing. It really is introduced pretty late mm-hmm. too, as far as I'm concerned. Like this weird. It looks like this descending ball sack, mm-hmm. it, it, and it turns out it's like it was the king all along. And you're like, what in the fuck <laughs> are you talking about? There's a moment in the movie that I remember as a kid confusing me, and watching it again for this show, it like screamed out at me even more. Where uh, Mario is confronting. King Koopa in the real world. And uh, this is part of the same uh, weird scene where like the twin towers get destroyed in an oddly prescient shot that will give any millennial a case of the chills where Koopa is pointing his de-evolution beam at Mario. And he's like, oh, I'm going to get you. And Mario pulls out a thin stemmed shitty little like the kind of mushroom that grows on like the edge of your tub if you're in a shitty Brooklyn apartment. And he's like, I got to trust the fungus. And the beam hits the mushroom. The mushroom grows. It still doesn't look like a fucking mushroom from the game. But there it is. There's Mario holding a big mushroom. And the beam is like backfires. And the day is like sort of saved. And as Koopa and Mario fade back to Dino Manhattan, for no reason, Mario grows a little bit. And King Koopa shrinks a little bit in a thing that I can only assume was one special effects artist's last ditch effort to like make anything that you recognize from the game happen. (laughs) I will say in the original Wizard of Oz version, Mario and King Koopa battle on a bridge over a lava filled pit. And it's up to Mario to cut the rope and plunge Bowser into the lava pit, you know, like in the game Super Mario Brothers. I Well, you did talk about that nonsensical ending where he just shoots Bowser with a gun. 
I will say they did have this intended final scene that was supposed to take place on the Brooklyn Bridge with Mario, I think, throwing a bomb down into Bowser's mouth, who was below, which is still not quite the thing, but still kind of like the thing Mm -hmm. from the video games. And that had to be cut for uh, budget and time reasons. And that's why we end up with this weird, he just shoots him with a gun at the end. (laughs) And Bowser's kind of in a thing that looks kind of like the final boss scenario for Super Mario Koopa World. Car, his little uh, clown ship thing. You know what we're talking about. And all they had to do to make that make at all sense or, or relevant to the game was have it look like a graffiti artist painted a clown face on the car on that little Bucket. floating thing. Why wouldn't they do that? That's just so obvious and not Because hard you to had do. to have given a shit about the game. <laughs> and nobody in that fucking room actually cared about the games. It was so weird. Like, it's just not even that crazy of a of an adaptation choice. Uh, I will say the special effects were done by Chris Woods, who did visual effects for Jacob's Ladder and The Revenant. This is the other silver lining. This is the first film to use the software Autodesk Flame that does digital effects for movies, and this is a landmark film for the transition from practical to digital effects. Uh, so, and that was apparently Autodesk Flame is this very standard software for for many films to come after this point. A lot of those effects they use a lot of like uh, character dissolves into like little particles that like really makes it look like an Amiga demo more so than like the real CG kind of revolution that was ushered in by Jurassic Park. But no, it is there. There's like little morph effects. Like there is a lot of digital effects, especially for the era. So with plenty of stuff to still shoot after 10 weeks, the money starts running out and the planned finale is scrapped that I just mentioned. Samantha Mathis said, we were supposed to wrap the movie, but our producers determined that we still had two and a half to three weeks of shooting to do. The directors were thanked and told, you can leave now. We're going to make the rest of the movie without you. At that point, it was abundantly clear things had gotten out of control. They also attempted to kick the directors out of the editing room as well. Morton said, I was locked out of the editing room. I had to get the DGA, Directors Guild of America, to come and help me get back into the editing room. I tried to get the editor to cut it digitally, but they refused. They wanted to edit on Moviola and Steenbeck machines, so the process was laboriously slow, which didn't help us get the special effect cut in on time. Anything else to say before we just get into, like, the release of the movie? Uh, One of the last blows to really just, like, twist the knife in the dead horse that had already been beaten nonstop for just how just disconcerting the energy of this movie is. In post, they added a soundtrack by Alan Silvestri, who we mentioned last time for uh, doing the Back to the Future film series, which he did an Mm. incredible job with. Listen to our Back to the Future episode if you want to hear me talk about all the cool shit Alan Silvestri did with that. He also did the soundtrack to uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, and clearly at the behest of uh, the producers and maybe the distributors at Disney, they gave this movie, which again, ugly, dark, grimy, sexually charged, just disgustingly anti-pleasant, the whole soundtrack is just there's like no references to any of the like music from the games. Right. There is already very iconic music from the game, by the way. Like it's already been so established, especially with Mario World adds all these other banger tracks that are incredible. So as you're watching people melt and hookers like stab each other and car crashes and explosions and all this shit, Silvestri's soundtrack is just fucking taking you to the baby 
circus the entire time <laughs> to even further just make things upsetting. Uh, one more thing is um, a lot of people have drawn a similarity between uh, Dennis Hopper's performance as the egomaniacal corporate kind of uh, narcissistic King Koopa with uh, one Donald Trump and one of the core points of evidence besides just the self-branding and obsession with high rises and uh, his own name is that he holds his hands in a very particular manner, similar Uh. to Trump's like little like kind of hand gestures. And um, it was during this research that I found out that no, it was Dennis Hopper's uh, choice that uh, since he is de-evolving into a T-Rex, it was his acting choice to hold his arms up to his chest like a little T-Rex. Uh-huh. And it, the directors constantly uh, begged him to stop doing it. <laughs> uh, so good. So the movie comes out on May 28, 1993. It grosses about half of what it costs to make. Uh, it was mercilessly ranked across the coals by critics. Years later, Super Mario Bros. Archive, it is online, is established. The reason for this is explained by founder Ryan Haas. I watched the film and I was left with this overriding question of why. (laughs) Why did this happen? And what does it mean? The website is that place for people to go and find those answers and be more informed and better able to get something out of this iteration of Super Mario Bros. The group ends up purchasing a previously unseen extended rough cut of the movie that was found in Roland Joffey's storage locker and sold on eBay. They took this film to restorationist Garrett Gilchrist to fix it up and get it online. There is now a cut with an additional 20 minutes of footage with the following scenes. There's a subplot with the Mario Brothers coming up against a rival mafia-linked plumbing operation called the Scapelli Brothers. There's a henchman of King Koopa being turned into a pile of goo. And there's this whole scene where there's just this pile of goo on the ground and it's not explained It's like at all. a very important point that that pile of goo is there yeah. and it is not acknowledged. It's just, it's just never not there one scene and then it is there for and, one scene. And people have never understood why and that is why. <laughs> and then, of course, the infamous rap starring Spike and Iggy at the Boom Boom Bar backed by scantily clad lizard dancers. It is something to behold. You can watch it on YouTube. I know we played the audio for you earlier. Um, man. Doesn't really, uh, I don't think it really recontextualizes the film enough uh, to mm. do anything uh, important other than just make you realize there was 20 more minutes there that wasn't there before. There's like a little bit of, uh, st- there's, it almost, it, 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 it's, it, it kind of like draws a few lines of thought together that were previously just kind of there. Right. But it doesn't, nah, no, it doesn't save the movie in any, it's not like the Snyder cut is just going to appear and fix this movie. Totally. Later, Morton said of the situation, it's very hard to remake a movie as you're filming. And that's what caused a lot of the problems. When asked about his memory of the production, he answered with only one word, humiliation. Scriptwriter Ed Solomon said, I did everything I could to help that movie. I don't think anyone who worked on it felt anything other than this is a giant swirling kaleidoscope and we have no idea if any of these fragments will form a cohesive picture. I don't think they did, but there were really interesting elements within that kaleidoscope. Even the perfect version of this movie, I think still would have been still just Still sucks, yeah. Yeah. The Wizard of Oz thing that you that is actually, what's funny is you're like, oh, there was this Wizard of Oz style thing 
you mean the movie that is about to come out? Yeah. The movie that's clearly <laughs> what that is? Like, Mario gets transported into this Mushroom Kingdom and has to but deal with- But it would with- have been, like, in the style, especially, it would have been Labyrinth or Legend. Right. It would have had that, like, literally, it is a meme now, that 80s dark fantasy, analog, prosthetic, stop motion kind of- energy that is now so captivating to people. It would have been amazing to have that version of the movie and it's just never gonna, it just wasn't meant to be. This is my final quote from actor Richard Edson. When you're involved with such a big disaster, the stench of it sort of stays with everybody. There was work I hoped for in Hollywood, but it never really happened for me after that. You have to be careful. If you're going to sell your soul, you'd better be getting more than just money out of it. Damn. Yeah, I love that line. That's great. If you're going to sell your soul. came out all right. He kept working, yeah, but I love that. If you're going to sell your soul, you better get more than just money, man. And uh, yeah, what what a crazy story. What a wild ride. Do yourself a favor. Do yourself a disservice. And before this new Mario movie that's probably going to be pretty good, watch this crazy shit show. You can watch it on Internet Archive, by the way. It's not actually on Mm. any streamers. It's not available on American Disney Plus, but apparently in Europe, you can watch it on Disney Plus. That's crazy. So check it out, my European buddies. All right, I think that's our show. Thank you so much for joining us for Super Mario Bros. 1993. You can follow us further on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. That's patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. We do weekly bonus content for just $5 a month, and that also includes ad-free episodes. On top of that, you also have, for $15 a month, the Sunday Study Session. The Sunday Study Session is here for you. Uh, We cover whatever. Hey, this time we watched the Super Mario Bros. movie, and it was hilarious and awful. Having a community of people equally befuddled watching along with us was essential. It's the best way to do it. Patreon.com forward slash whizbrew. Twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho. I stream Monday through Friday. It's always a good time. Twitch.tv forward slash holdenators ho. Jake? Uh, Follow me on Twitter. Twitter at Best Jake Young, Instagram at Best Jake Young. And hey, I also do a little bit of a streamy thing. It's called The Cartoon Dumpster, and I do it every Thursday, 7 p.m. Eastern, and we watch weird old bad cartoons from the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. It is a rollicking good time. If you enjoy the kind of pop nostalgia chaos that we get into onto this podcast, I really think you'll enjoy it. It's uh, Just search for Puppet Jared on YouTube and Twitch. That's twitch.tv slash Puppet Jared, youtube.com slash Puppet Jared. That's my VTuber avatar. I didn't think this through, but that's his name. <laughs> And hey, always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. April, if you can take us out with the uh, Super Mario Brothers movie Ertle action figure commercial from 1993, I think that'll uh, be a good way to send us off. Hey, kids, I'm here to tell you about two extremely famous plumbers, Mario Mario and Luigi Mario, from the Super Mario Brothers movie. You want to know what makes them super? Because they triumph over the evil Koopa and his brain sidekicks, Iggy and Spike. Using only their plumbing tools, and they battle the Goombas. Koopa's hideous dino human army. Those Goombas are scary. The Super Mario Brothers action figures from Turtle. But don't worry, they're not real. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors, you can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com.
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.